Good morning, LCM. And our one association, brothers and sisters. It is July 22nd, 2023. And today's title is Call to Kingship. Call to Kingship. We've had the opportunity to reflect on the progress that this body has made since 2012. And to be frank, it is truly astounding. In the last decade, we have been to well over 30 unique countries and have faithfully revisited many of those countries many times. From this body, five pastors have been raised up that built thriving teams and churches in the United States as well as internationally. We stand here today far stronger than we were in 2012. Somebody say amen to that. Today, we are far stronger than we were in 2012, and that much has been accomplished in the last 11 years. We are poised in the next decade to accomplish five times what we have in the past. Moreover, we're poised to accomplish a hundredfold what we have done in the past in the next two decades. Since 2012, an innumerable amount of sons and daughters have been born to this house. Sons and daughters that will know nothing other than the scriptures since their infancy. Just as Paul described Timothy. All of this has been built by the faithfulness of our God. Even when we, somebody say we. we. Even when we, for brief periods, were unfaithful, had stumblings in our upward call of God. I'm not ashamed to come out and say it with you this morning. This is a strong ministry. But the reason why this ministry is strong is not because we haven't had our moments of failure. In fact, we've had many failures along the way. God has been faithful to correct us. No, this ministry is strong because of an adherence to the word when we find out what must change. Amen. We've been pliable in the hands of God. Today's going to be an overtly honest message with you. Birth from the wrestling going on in our own lives with newfound truths in the word of God and our own previous lack of adherence to it. Like, I didn't know back then, but now, Judah, but now... But now now, now that I'm aware, I will not move. Amen. What we cover today must instill permanent convictions in your hearts. Because the generations and the multiplied works ahead, well, they depend on it. Let's jump into the text. Numbers chapter 2. Everybody go there with us. This is the Lord delivering greater insight to Moses and Aaron regarding the calling and the arrangement of the encampment of his people, the 12 tribes of Israel. We will start in verse 1. But now! But now! The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing. Somebody say facing. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Guys, we're talking about the tribal arrangement here. The 12 tribes of Israel, 
They were always to be arranged in the exact same way, facing the tent where God's presence dwelt. In other words, they were to arrange themselves around the ark of God, which was at the center of the camp. And it didn't matter what the terrain looked like, what the geography around them looked like, what they were encamped in at the current moment. This would mean that all of their eyes, the eyes of every member of every 12 tribes, would be continually set on the place where Adonai's tangible presence dwelt. And they would know their proper relationship to the other tribes by examining the Ark of God first. In many other sermons, we've done this a lot in teachings. We've shown you the message that is spoken through the meanings of the tribal names and the banners themselves. But suffice it to say that their purpose was only on point in right alignment with the focal point of God's presence, the ark. Amen. Somebody say they were arranged. They were arranged. Around the ark. Saints, what this means is the 12 tribes knew how to arrange their lives by focusing on the center of the camp where the presence of God dwelt. That was the only way that they knew. We're going to roll forward in numbers, and it's going to continue to give us a description of the effects of the ark of God on the people of God and the enemies that surrounded them. This is Moses' words in Numbers 10, verse 35. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Since the ark as the focal point for Adonai's presence, well, it determined the movements and the resting place of the people of Israel. You will remember that when the cloud and the pillar of fire moved, so did the ark and the other furnishings of the tabernacle. For the people of Israel, staying in step with the ark, it meant sure victory wherever the people of God were moved because God was rising up. Wherever the people of God were led, they also found safe resting wherever they were at because God rested among them. This is because Adonai in all of his power is rising any time that his ark is on the move. And Adonai, in all of his power, was returning to dwell in the midst of the people any time that they settled again around the ark in its appropriate arrangement. To be separated from the ark, well, it was death in the desert. It meant that you would die because you were separated from Adonai and his divine protection that preserved the people. In a sense... The Lord himself was rising up anywhere that the ark went. So the people of God, as they followed the ark, as the focal point of Adonai's presence, were rising up anywhere they followed it. Now Moses' disciple Joshua, he would have a very similar experience and relationship with the ark of God. And that's found in Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Come on. 
This passage clearly articulates Joshua relying on the command of God to the priesthood. The instruction was explicitly to take up the ark. Guys, this is happening both in the physical and in the spiritual. When the ark is taken up, when it arises, that means in the physically, in the physical sense, the ark is born on the shoulders of the priests. It's resting on their shoulders. It's rising up. In a spiritual sense, that means that anywhere you carried the focal point of God, as directed by God, you yourself were going upward with the ark of God going upward. That's good news this morning. Moreover, staying in step with God's presence, with moving, brought Joshua upward as a leader. In the same exact way that it had brought Moses up as a leader the years previous. Let's continue in verse 8. Tell the priest who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the HIVites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Look, aside from the funny names here, the effect of the Ark of God that was about to be displayed in the Jordan, well, it was to be a sign of all of the future victories to come for Israel. Amen. So quite literally, the focal point of the Ark will display the manifestation of God's presence and power over the created earth in the coming verses. Let's go down to verse 14. Verse 14, so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, or the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So, the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. While all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now, that's a miraculous passage that most of you have read many times. But we're going to use this progression through Numbers and through Joshua to lay some framework for the rest of our message. Now, I want your eyes up here as I run through this. We're going we're to do this several times. But the first time will be important to lay a foundation for where we're going. Let's review a few aspects of the ark and the people's relationship to it that you've learned through our first verses. Number one, the people's lives were to be arranged and encamped facing the ark. In effect, keeping their eyes on it at all times. Number two, the people's family banners, their standards, even their purpose in life were derived from their relationship to each other as arranged around the ark. Number three, 
both victory and life were found only in staying in step with the movement of the ark. Remember, if you didn't stay in step, you died in the desert. Number four, security in both rest and in home life was found in connection with staying where the ark of God rested. The focal, I'm sorry, that's number four. Number five, the tangible manifestation of Adonai's presence was found in being where the ark was, as it was the focal point for Adonai's power as well as his manifested presence. Six, the ark as the seat of God's presence was always called higher ground because it was. It always would be higher ground for the people. Many have actually speculated as to how Adonai caused the water to be piled up at the Jordan. Like, was it a couple angels that were holding the water back? Was it a great wind that blew like the Red Sea and blew the water back? We think it's actually quite simple as we look at the ark. Water only flows downhill. It can't flow uphill. So when the higher ground that was the ark of God became in the way of the water... The water did exactly what you would expect. Oh, come on, that's good. It flowed back to the lower ground. Look, just to help to explain that, some of you are familiar with the concept of making Aliyah, going up to Jerusalem. Can I tell you that the idea of going up to Jerusalem has nothing to do with elevation? You could be coming from Mount Everest to Jerusalem, and you're still going up to Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Now, I love Israel. I especially love the people of Israel. But having been in Jerusalem, there is nothing special about the dirt itself. There's nothing special about the mountain itself. It is because it is the place where God's presence dwells. Anywhere that the ark is, is up, regardless of where you're coming from. You ascend, even as you go into Jerusalem, into the gates of the temple, ever higher as you near the place where God's presence dwells. With that in mind, let's take our seventh. So the seventh is on that subject. The seventh thing about the ark of God and the people's relationship to it was that moving with the ark was always upward movement. God himself was pictured as arising whenever the ark moved. Now, honestly, we're not really certain how Adonai, Yahweh, who is already dwelling in the highest heavens, can arise or even go up higher. But the text clearly says that he did arise. He did go up higher when the ark set out. For the people of God, a still yet higher state was to be obtained every single time the ark moved. And they went with it as the focal point for Adonai's presence. Look, I know you didn't catch that and you didn't meditate on it. How does the God who is in the highest heavens go up any higher? Like Moses is saying, arise, O Lord. How does God arise? Well, he arises when his people come up with him. The entire kingdom and people of God arise and his name is glorified because his people are where he is. Look, lest your eyes gloss over and you think to yourself, this message is only relevant for the people of Israel like those Jews we're New Testament Christians. We're not under the law. The ark of God is gone. We're going to read to you the testimony of a man named Uriah the Hittite. 
Just in case you didn't know, a Hittite is a Gentile. That's Gentile. Like, among Gentiles, a Hittite is really Gentile. Gentile of Gentiles. And he happened to be in David's service. This is 2 Samuel 11, 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Look, man, Uriah the Hittite, the Gentile, his life was arranged and encamped based on where the ark of God was. His eyes were always on the ark, even though he's not staring at it. He's sitting in front of David, the king of Israel. And what he says is, the ark is out there. Where do you think his mind, his purpose, his arrangement is? It is centered on where the ark of God is above all else. Uriah's standard, as well as his very purpose in life. Think about this Gentile. The standard and purpose of Uriah was derived from the ark and his brother's arrangement around it. He said, the ark, as well as the brothers, as well as the soldiers, are out there in the field. How could I be here right now when all of that is out there? I know where my position is, and it's not here with you, king. Uriah's victory in life were only found in staying in step with the ark of God. He would quite literally rather sleep on the floor with the servants of David than concede to being separate from the ark and from his brothers. Look, while you're meditating on that, I look forward every day to coming home to my amazing redhead on the front row. Oh, come on. Uriah had been out in the camp, had been at war. But because the presence of God was not dwelling in his home, but was on the battlefield, he was not willing to go home to his wife. And Uriah knew that the ark going forward was not just about warfare. He knew that his security and rest, also the shalom of his home life, was found by being where the ark of God dwelt. Did you see that he wouldn't even go home because the ark was not resting in the city? He would go out to it. Come on. Uriah knew that the tangible manifestation of Adonai's presence was only found in staying in step with the ark and that that was more important to him than being in the presence of any earthly king, oh, yeah. even David himself. Come on. Uriah knew that the ark was the seat of God's presence, the God of Israel who he had come to love and was therefore always the higher ground in any situation. Saints, the seventh thing that Uriah knew was that he had to move where the ark was because moving where the ark was was always upward motion. For Uriah, and you can hear it in his own words, a Gentile moving away from the ark to meet with David was going downward. He said, surely not. I will not do this. Where the ark is, is higher ground, and I have already lowered myself to leave its presence. The Hittites definitely were not entrusted with the words of Moses. Israel was definitely the nation that were entrusted with those words. 
Uriah, however, learned to cling to the focal point of the God of Israel just the same. Guess who that's like, church? That's us. Yeah, that's us right there. We are just like Uriah the Hittite. We've got a slide for you to help visually summarize some of these points. The Ark of the Covenant. The people's lives were to be arranged in an encamp facing the Ark where with their eyes always on it. The people's family banner, standard, and purpose were derived from their relationship to each other as arranged around the Ark. Three, victory and life were found only in staying in step with the Ark's movement. Number four, security and rest. Security and home life was only found in connection with staying where the Ark of God was resting. Five, the tangible manifestation of Adonai's presence was found in being where the ark was, the focal point of Adonai's power and presence. Six, the ark as the seat of God's presence was always higher ground. And seven, moving with the ark was always upward movement. When you're staring at this slide and you're considering those seven points, we know that you can now see the dire importance of your relationship to the ark of God. Even the Gentile Uriah recognized this fact. And guys, he died well because he understood this revelation. Say it with me. I must be with the ark. I must be with the ark. You can do better than that. I must be with the ark. I must be with the ark. See, the thing is, you New Testament Christians might have guessed that it's not really about the ark. In fact, we're going to read Jeremiah 3, and it's going to have an interesting commentary on the ark of God and our relationship to it. It's Jeremiah 3, verse 16. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel and Together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. Look, just to put it clearly, this was never about the ark. The ark was just a temporary focal point for the manifestation of Adonai's tangible presence on earth. The ark was not meant to be the end goal, but instead a divinely instituted training tool. The point was always a unified people with the Lord on the throne as the focal point for that unified people. The picture in Jeremiah is of a divine king and his people who all together make up the kingdom and dwelling place of God in Jerusalem. That means that everything that was true about the ark, well, it's even more true of the throne of God and the king of the kingdom. Jeremiah said plainly that in place of the ark would be the throne of the Lord. In other words, the divine king, 
the representation of God in all of his glory, the perfect image of him, Jesus, the Messiah, who is the king of the kingdom. Now, Nick and I are often accused of many things, and some of them are true. But among the things that we're accused of wasting time is not generally among them. Can I say clearly that many of you here at LCM knew that Jesus was to be the center of your life like the ark before you walked in here? Absolutely. You were aware of that. That is not news to you. But the thing is, your life has not felt as dependent on being centered on the throne of God in the same way that Israel's daily life was centered on the ark. Watching it at all times, knowing where to stand based on their relationship to it, where they move, where they settle, morning after morning, everything that they did depended upon constant eye contact with the ark. You and I know that Jesus' kingship is a reality and that we are in his kingdom, but you're unable to physically see Jesus like Israel could physically see the ark. Hebrews 12.2, in fact, says that we are to fix our eyes on him, much in the same way that Israel faced the ark at all times. But you can't see him. Well, we're going to re-examine our seven items again with Jesus as the king of the kingdom in replacement of the ark as Jeremiah prophesied would happen. After we do this, it is going to help us understand what God is showing us, revealing to us, and We'll go on to describe how we accomplish this. Now, Pastor Judah and I love to preach linear messages. So you might want to take note of this point as we move forward. Here's our slide entitled, The King of the Kingdom. Number one. Who's the king of the kingdom, by the way? Okay, thank you. Number one, the people's lives are to be arranged and encamped facing the king with their eyes always on him. The people's family banner, standard, and purpose are derived from their relationship to each other as deranged around the king. Three, victory and life are found only in staying in step with the king's movement. Security and rest and in your home life is only found in connection with staying where the king of the kingdom is resting. Five, the tangible manifestation of Adonai's presence is found in being where the king is, the focal point of Adonai's power and presence. Six, the king as the seat of God's presence is always higher ground. And seven, moving with the king of the kingdom is always upward movement. Let's go up. Let's go up. So saints, while you're looking at the slide, it begs this question. If Israel struggled to follow the ark that they could physically see, I mean, we're not taking the time to go through every rebellion. How many thousands of them were slain in the desert because they failed to follow the ark that they could see? How can we follow Jesus in the same manner as the ark was followed and you see on the slide? Saints, it's a life or death scenario. I mean, it's a good question. to be separated from the ark is to die in the desert. The very throne of God is the same for us in that it is the dwelling of God with man. To be separated from facing his throne at all times is death. 
and yet you can't physically face his throne. Our body has recently received a revelation from Psalm 73 and 101. The sin in Asaph's life was the result of departing from the Davidic charter of Psalm 101. We're going to dive into Psalm 101 with fresh engagement today. But as our aim is to set firm convictions in you, we will not be jumping directly into the text. We're going to begin with the agonizing and transformative process that produced the charter of Psalm 101. When somebody throws out something that's amazing, it's wonderful. You can eat it like it's popcorn. But if you have no idea the agony that it took to produce it, it means nothing more to you than popcorn. Many of you will remember a sermon from 2020 called Metamorphosis, Suffering Unto Glory. We're going to begin by reviewing highlights from the Davidic Psalms 22, 23, and 24 as they're covered in that message. In 2020, we talked about these psalms being a progression and a foundation for what was to come in David's life and his kingship and his kingdom. We're going to start with the first one, which is Psalm 22. If you remember, this is all about the theme of the suffering king. We're going to prove that to you on this slide. Verse 1 talks about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you hear the suffering king's voice in that? Verses 7 through 8, all who see me mock me. They say, let him deliver him. You see that mock right in the face of the suffering king. Verses 14 through 18, my strength is dried up. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. Seems like a very desperate situation because it was. But you can see in verse 22 what it begins to result in in the king's life. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You see, he finds himself refocused on the throne of God and on the people of God. And look what he begins to do in those last verses. You who fear the Lord. He's addressing his brothers now. Praise him, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. Saints, while you're looking at this slide, you need to know that in David's time, the people of Israel were in the land. They're no longer following the ark on a daily basis. David, who Peter calls in Acts 2 a prophet, knew that what he was to do was to cling to the very throne of God, like Israel had the ark in the early days, even though he couldn't see it moving. David knew that he had a personal call to kingship, and not an ordinary king, a king who would in fact sit on the throne of God in Jerusalem as Adonai's representation before mankind. What was developed in David through this agonizing crucifixion moments was a determined conviction To put the dogs out of his mind. Now, don't get lost in the imagery here. David is speaking about men, and he calls them dogs. But he puts that, he puts the mocking, all of those things, out of his ears and out of his thoughts. So that those kinds of feelings are no longer obscuring his view. In Psalm 22, he even expresses the sentiment of feeling like he was permanently forsaken. And that too comes underneath his feet. 
This resulted in a conviction to praise God all the more constantly and consistently, essentially setting his eyes or his face toward the throne of God, regardless of his geography. What is even better is that in the psalm itself, he exhorts his brothers to do the same alongside him. In the record of Samuel and Chronicles, we can clearly see David's growing conviction to set his eyes on the Lord and the Lord alone, and that he taught the men who were with him during his time period prior to ascending to the throne to do the same exact thing. When they were ready to stone him at times, I mean, anybody read the accounting? It wasn't always pretty with the brothers. David grabs hold of an ephod and seeks God. Again and again, he turns his attention above his surroundings, like Israel always arranging their lives around the ark of God. His firm conviction was the work product of a life filled with suffering. Men like Ittai were the result of this profound wrestling in David's soul. And they too determined to set their eyes on being at the throne of God. No matter what they experienced. The life of David as displayed in Psalm 22 was not an easy one. But it did produce a man worth pattering our lives after. In fact, Jesus would later work out many of the exact details displayed in Psalm 22 and say the same words verbatim. Guys, before we move to our next slide, I want you to notice something on Psalm 22 slide. Do you see how verse 1 begins? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the suffering king starts out with a why. When you guys have gone through difficult situations, I mean, theoretically... Do you ever begin with the question why? I know that I do. That happens all the time. Why is this happening? But it's not about the question why. We know that Psalm 22 is going to provide the opportunity for the king to be rightly shepherded by his God and to become a shepherd for those men who he's been entrusted to him. It's not about why are these things happening. It's about the what of verse 22. I will fix my eyes on the throne of God. It's about the what in verse 23 and 24. I will be in the congregation with my brothers, teaching them to praise the name of the Lord. That is what paves the way for you to be shepherded and to learn how to shepherd others. Psalm 23 is next in our progression. The shepherding king. You can see in verse 1, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Look at that resoluteness right there in the beginning of the psalm. Our brother is learning something through this process. Verse 2, he makes me lie down. He leads me. What a good shepherd is my king to me. Three, he guides me in paths of righteousness. You can see how his eyes are being trained to be fixed on the throne. And he's finding out that God is guiding him into righteousness consistently. Verse four, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me because they keep me on the path of righteousness. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me, you anoint my head with oil. Whether that table is in front of enemies or that table is a table of rest, he has learned to trust in the shepherd of his soul. And finally, verse 6, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
You may be beginning to notice that in both Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, David is not free of adversity. He's actually far from it, in fact. In Psalm 23, what is not on the slide on purpose is that he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And the table that God has prepared for him is one that is in the presence of enemies. However, in both Psalms, David's conclusion is that he will dwell in the presence of Yahweh. Amen. Again, his life was not a life of ease, but the wrestling produced a conviction in him that he would acknowledge the enemies. He would acknowledge the valley of the shadow of death in his mind, will and emotions. They would turn and be placed on the good shepherd of his soul above all else. David published this psalm so that generations of men could not only read what he wrote from his experience, but could gain the same conviction that he had from his experience. Come on, we need that. David was called to kingship. Kingship upon the throne of God in Jerusalem as Adonai's ambassador and earthly representation of God as the son of God. David was shepherded by Adonai. And as a result, he became the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 78, 72 says that he shepherded Israel with skillfulness of hands and integrity of heart. In other words, as a result of his interaction with Adonai as his good shepherd, David became a good shepherd. A shepherd that was shrewd in the application of wisdom from above. And a shepherd who walked with constant internal integrity that stemmed from him setting his mind, his will, his emotions, and his thoughts constantly on the throne of God. Yes, Psalm 23 is David publishing his own trials, failures, and subsequent convictions for the benefit of all who would come after him. David's life, again, was far from perfect or at ease. But it was certainly worth imitating. In John 10... Jesus will also be referred to as the good shepherd, directly drawing from David's writings about Yahweh that were birthed from a choice to arrange his life around the throne of God at all times. Amen. You guys ready to see what the king learned in Psalm 24 together? Yes. We've gone from the suffering king to the shepherding king, and Psalm 24 is the superior king. Verses 1 through 2. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it and established it. What could be more superior than a king who everything in the world and the heavens and the earth belongs to and who is the creator of all those things? I don't think there's anything above that. Verses three through four, who may ascend the hill of this kind of Lord? That's a great question. Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Does that language resonate with you when we're talking about Psalms of David? That was a deep conviction of King David and it shows up all throughout the Psalms. Verses 5 and 6. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is those who seek him. 
Those who seek your face, when you seek the face of the king, what do you receive? You receive blessings from him. You receive vindication from him. You are in shalom with him. You are together with him. That is what happens when you seek the great king. Verses 7 and 8. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of majesty? Look at that encouragement continue in verses 9 through 10. Lift up your heads. Guys, that is verbiage for lift up your heads and fix your eyes on the throne of the king of kings. That the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. The same conclusion for all three of these psalms. And when you lift up your heads and you gaze upon the majesty and the throne of this king of glory, the promise is that the king of glory will come meet with you. Saints, David was acutely aware that he, in fact, was not the king of glory. He's the author who wrote this. He was, however, called to kingship in the seat of the king of glory. The one that is in Jerusalem is God's earthly picture of the king on earth. David is writing Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and 24 as he is contemplating his future work as a king in God's stead. Saints, you remember much of his life was spent knowing that he was called to kingship, but not actually sitting on the throne. It's because there's a process that's developing a conviction in his life. The agony and striving to produce a pure heart that could be continually set before the throne of God, just like Israel was arranged around the ark, each tribe facing it, well, it produced in David a desire to see every impediment removed before himself and those who followed him up to this point. Psalm 24, speaking of those impediments, declares... Raise the ancient gates, the ancient doors, i.e. open anything and everything that is between me, my people, and God dwelling in and among us. Get it out of the way. Over the course of time and through many crucifying moments, David would go on to conquer Jerusalem and solidify the kingdom of Israel, at least on an external level. This process produced in David an undying fixation on the focal point of God's tangible manifestation on the earth. That being his very throne. David had every reason to be fixated, as David Flusser or recently Justin Treister would say, a rich milieu of problems. Like we're saying, David had every reason to be fixated on a rich milieu of sinful, adversarial, and difficult situations. And yet, the focal point of God's presence, his throne, that is what drew David into a greater and greater singularity of thought. That being the king of glory above all else. David, as a man called to kingship and the ancestor of Jesus, could not help but begin to focus on the throne of the king of glory above all else. This is because he was aware of his own fallibility in the extent to which meditating on anything other than the surety of God's goodness was a misleading snare in his life. David would go on not only to unite all Israel, as Jeremiah forecasted that Jesus would do, but he also went on to impose a national devotion to God 
as Ezekiel says that Jesus will later do. All of this stemmed from David's personal interaction with the Lord and understanding that he must be centered on, arranged according to, and facing the throne of God at all times. Just as Israel had been with the ark of God, it is an inappropriate time for us to revisit what Adonai had ordained as our, somebody say our, our, our relationship to his throne. In the same pattern as the men who were filled with the spirit of God did in the past. Saints, when you're considering this, you're filled with the very spirit of Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. Every one of you are called to embody him, to sit as his representative on the earth. You are to display the manifestation of God's presence on a daily basis. We're going to use David as our example as we talk through this. Put our familiar slide back on the screen, the king of the kingdom. We're going to talk through David for a moment. Well, it's okay. Listen, listen carefully as we talk through this. David's life was arranged and encamped based on where the throne of God was. He, he learned to have his eyes always on it. He arranged not only his own personal life, but also that which was in his dominion, expanding to also include the surrounding area as in the lives of men in Israel and all the territories that were under his control. This started with his warriors, but you will see as God elevates him because of, of course, the skillfulness of his hand and the integrity of his heart, he goes on to expand the same conviction to all Israel as the sons of God. This was indeed a taxing process, but in many ways it developed David and his kingdom because they kept the real focal point their focal point. The end result was an inspired charter. You guys know something about that. A charter that all men called to kingship could follow, just like the men in this room. David's standard and purpose in life were derived from the very throne of God and his brother's arrangement. He was blessed as a result of that. The administration of David was the height, in many ways, of the kingdom of God on earth. Solomon would go on to do amazing things, and he would also mix the godly kingdom with carnal and sinful idolatry. There's no hint of that in David's administration. Amen. Guys, David knew that victory and life were found only in staying in step with God's throne. He would rather die than be separated from the spirit of God as embodied in the throne of God. David wrote for the benefit of all of us when he wrote the words, Do not cast me from your presence, Lord, or take your Holy Spirit from me. This was his cry before God, even going so far as to say in the actual manuscript what sin he had committed and putting it before everybody for all time. Wow. Saints, we're going to take a moment to wake up together. Yeah. Somebody raise your hands for a second. We're 45 minutes into a message in a church that has been preparing to spend your life in devotion to the word of God. We're going to ask that he would wake us up, that he would cause us to be able to receive what he desires, that we would draw near to the throne of God so that this is not lost on us. Mighty one, we ask right now, Lord, that you would stir every man, woman, and child in this room.
Lord, that we would receive your word with a desire to eagerly work inside of it. Lord, that this moment you might begin to open the eyes of our hearts to understand what you have given us. Rouse us, mighty one. Rouse us with the presence of your ark of your throne, mighty king. Saints, we're going to continue going through this. I love you to death, and I'm going to surely transfer the impact that this scripture has on us today. Somebody say it's going to get real. You're learning. You're building on principles this very moment. I promise this is going to come to such a searing moment that you will want to have paid attention. Because if you did not, it's going to be extremely awkward. Everyone in here is going to rise to a call in kingship. But it will come from you acting like a king right now and rousing yourself. The fourth thing was David's security and rest and home life was only found in being where the throne of God dwelt. We're hesitant to flash forward too far, but in the first two verses of Psalm 101, David clearly says, I will walk in my house with blameless heart. The fifth thing was David knew that the tangible manifestation of Adonai's presence was found in staying in step with the throne of God. David laid the plans, the funding, the manpower, the infrastructure for the permanent dwelling of God to exist in Israel, For this reason, because he knew that the throne of God was above and more important than all else. The sixth thing was that David knew that the throne was the seat of God's presence and was therefore always the higher ground in any situation. The abundance of writings in Samuel and Psalms show that David did not delve into lower level thinking for the whims of man, but instead took his high ground on the word and the presence of God Almighty. The seventh was that David had many life experiences that instilled inside of him the deep conviction that moving where the throne of God was located was moving upward for him no matter where he went. Saints, along that line of thought, later in his experiences with Uriah and those dark times, he would even go on to be able to publish a psalm so that everyone else would benefit from the time he drifted from the throne. There was a brief three-month period in his life where his life was not centered on the ark, not centered on the throne of God, and he allowed it to go into the household of Obed-Edom. But do you know what? He saw what happened when Obed-Edom focused his life on the throne of God, and he says, no, I want the ark. I want the throne of God. I'm going back to where I should be. Nick is going to take us through some of Asaph's writings and clearly into the Davidic charter of Psalm 101. Guys, you know that Asaph's mistake was in departing from that charter of Psalm 101. You know, we as a body are so regularly blessed with revelation that it is actually a predictable pattern that most of it is enjoyed for just a short while without actually making it into the very center of your being. Without actually coming out in your actions and your daily practice. Guys, we need to change this so that we can have undying convictions that are based on the revelation coming out of this place. Proverbs 27.7 says, He who is full is the one that loathes honey. But to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. Oh, are you full yet this morning? Are you still hungry? 
Because what we have to present to you is not bitter waters. We promise you that. We do not endeavor to starve anyone. Instead, we're going to stretch your stomach this morning. We're going to expand your capacity to consume the bread that is Jesus embodied in the law, in the prophets, and in the writings. While you guys have enjoyed Psalm 101 for just a little while, we are here to tell you that it must become a deep conviction in your lives. It must be one of those things that's written in the front of your Bible and you go back to time and time and time again throughout the course of your time on this earth. This includes a pressing beyond the consumer appetite that you so easily slip into and into the appetite of the hungry for righteousness. We're going to examine a man's work from the 1880s. Why are we going to do that? Because men just wrote a lot better in the 1880s than they do today. You can see that his hungry soul was the very thing that devoured the Davidic charter of Psalm 101. He actually went on to understand the connections between Psalm 101 and the rest of David's life. And we would like to get into that with you this morning. Saints, you ever surprised that someone else received the same revelation that you did? We found this subsequent to engaging with Psalm 101 in our last few services. So Psalm 101 would now in order of time immediately follow Psalm 24. Mm -hmm. 22, 23, 24. The poet, as a king of mighty authority, may readily be discovered to be David. For David's higher genius is throughout expressed. Zion has already become the seed of David and the house of Yahweh. But as yet, all things are not ordered and made even in the new administration of David. The new state has to be more firmly developed. Yes, Lord. I.e., through a charter of personal and national devotion. Especially the surroundings of the king. On the character of which, according to the fashion of the old kingdom, so much depends, have to be selected and sifted. Ooh, come on, baby. David's writing of Psalm 101 was likely subsequent to uniting Israel and conquering Jerusalem, but it was well before establishing a general culture of devotion to Adonai in the same manner that his men and he had through the time periods of Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. Think about it. The effects of sinful Saul are all still on the kingdom. The idolatry of the judges are still on the kingdom. David is now king, and he's responsible for a larger house. Psalm 101 constitutes an eight-verse burst of the prophet, poet, and king, and warrior's heart as he reflects on how to more firmly establish the sanctity of the kingdom that he has so recently received. Namely, it is concerning and centered on a fixation of mind, will, emotions, and thought on the throne of Adonai above all else. This starts with David personally and then extends to the rest of his house, which is Jerusalem as the king of Israel. You know, Pastor Judah, we weren't the only ones that found Mr. Ewald from the 1880s. Our next slide is the pulpit commentary. It is regarded by some as a portrait of an ideal ruler i.e. the ruler that we should be. Ideal ruler, dramatically put into his mouth, 
by others as an actual address to God by a real ruler, making profession of his intentions and asking God to aid him. The title of the psalm, both in the Hebrew and the Septuagint, which ascribes it to David, favors the latter view. Look at this. Mr. Ewald and DeWitt, who maintained the Davidical authorship, note the simplicity, the depth, and the concentration of the thought as wholly worthy of the reputed writer. Metrically, the psalm divides itself into two stanzas, each of four verses. That'll become important very soon. In the first stanza, which is verses one through four, the writer declares the principles on which he intends to act in his private life. He sets his private life out there in verses one through four. In the second stanza, which is verses five through eight, he enunciates those by which he means to be guided in his government of the people. Ewald is this guy from the 1880s, a commentator, a scholar that we first read about in the first slide. The psalm itself matches a great deal of our recent discoveries in the book of Acts and in Foundations. David begins with the first four verses of eight, speaking of keeping watch over himself personally first. Let's look at the summary of them. Well, you have that on the screen. You see that there are seven I will statements in this. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you. Amen. I will make music, oh, yeah. as in writing down praise so that it could be preserved for the generations ahead. Amen. I will walk in integrity of heart within my house. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Not the things that are wrong, the way that is blameless. Amen. I will walk with integrity of heart. I will not set worthless things before my eyes. I will know nothing of evil. Amen. These four verses of eight constitute seven I will statements. This is a mandatory charter for every man who will fall after the son of David. Yep. Today is the day that we move past loathing honey, eating things as if they're popcorn. You will set as a standard for you and your home these seven aspects. David's home was not just his wives and children. David's home was the people of God and the city of Jerusalem. His responsibility extended from his own personal life into every area of the kingdom. David had a handle on these things. And it extended his rule as the rule of God. If you're struggling to grasp the wider concept of David's home, then bear with us for just a moment, because it will become clear. But while you're thinking of the things that are under David's responsibility, engage with the next four verses and seven action items that David commanded those in his immediate vicinity and kingdom to obey. Come on, this is the second stanza, verses five through eight. David has seven action items. Firstly, I will destroy those who slander. Secondly, not endure those who are arrogant in heart. Three, look with favor on the faithful. Yes! Four, be ministered to by the blameless. Five, no one who practices deceit will be allowed to dwell in this house. Number six, no one who utters lies will continue before your sight. And seven, the evildoers will be cut off morning by morning. David's charter uh, of course, begins with him and moves to demonstrable steps. 
Ones that are intended to forcefully affect the kingdom around him. You walked in here knowing that Jesus was to be the center of your life. Is that true? Yeah. What does a sober lie detector level test say about your actual adherence to the throne of God though? We still have to go higher. Do these 14 demands of relation to the throne of God appear evidently in your personal integrity? Do they then appear in your interactions with the outside world? If not, church, we got a sugar problem up in here. We've been eating too much honey without increasing both the metabolism and the appetite that we must have. Today, we got to get rid of that flabby excess, church. It's time to cut it right out of us and put into action the convictions that Adonai is so faithfully forming into us. While the slide is still on the screen, you need to examine the first seven about your own life and then these. But destroy those who slander. How many of you in the room in the last five days have heard slander in your own ears and were complicit with it? Maybe you didn't participate in it, but you didn't destroy those who slander. Do not endure those who are arrogant in heart. I mean, engage with this for just a moment. This is not speaking about not personally being arrogant. I will not endure those who are arrogant in heart. All of this is stemming from his personal watch over himself and shows up in the way he represents God to the world. Do you represent God to the world like David did? Look with favor on the faithful. Do you have an undying commitment, an undying affection and favor for those who are faithful to God, regardless of whether or not you like their personal habits? So look, I'm not going to work all the way through the seven right now. I just want you to engage with this for a moment. Let's take our next slide while you're meditating on that. The new state had to be more firmly developed. You heard this earlier, especially the surroundings of the king on the character of which, according to the fashion of the old kingdom, so much depends. Essentially, that means that the kingdom will follow the king. Your kingdom, your household, the world around you will follow you as king for better or worse. It goes on to say David himself is still standing on the steps of a general decisive period. Can I tell you that we're at a decisive period? God has accomplished so much from this body and a hundredfold is hanging on what we do right now with the households that we have. David, not strong and armed enough in the inner man for the difficult, the progressive task of his future life. Yet even in this period of the rule in Jerusalem and the splendor of victory and of the newly obtained crown over all Israel in a time also when lesser princes were so readily blinded and overcome by the treacherous brilliance of prosperity or had given way before their difficult task. David feels himself all the more urged. All the more urged to enlighten and strengthen his own heart and constant praise of Yahweh and his virtues and an unwearied longing after him. He desires to apprehend the true principles for the conduct of a government equally strong and just and therefore to hold far from his heart evil intention. He who begins his rule with such intentions as they here gush forth in guileless simplicity is bound to end happily. Nothing opens to us so clearly all the nobleness and powerful light of David's soul than this 
short song. Saints, you can see the rest of the slide that is about the simplicity of the eight verses. You would think a man who had just unified the kingdom, who had just conquered Jerusalem, would have pages to write about. But the reality is, is he realized the extent to which he personally was responsible for the character of the kingdom and those who would come after him. It ground him down to simple eight verses that are about fixing his eyes on the very throne of God. Now, you're aware that Nick and I and the rest of the pastoral staff are often disgusted with the average preacher or scholar. However, we have to admit that we're wholeheartedly in agreement with Ewald here. Not only is David in a general decisive period, we are as well. Much has been built, and this ministry has gone far as carried along by the ministers that make up the body of Messiah in this room. We, however, are a long way from shaping the culture of the whole kingdom around us. Now is the time to recognize the call to kingship on our lives. We can no longer settle for the meaningless distractions of anything other than the throne of God because the world is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed in this room. A general concerted effort to praise Yahweh all the more must rise from our hearts during every fruitless and far off moment. This is the time for us to ascend to kingship. Guys, we've got one more slide from Ewald that we need to put up on the screen. Engage with this. This is part three. The poet begins with the thought of the divine virtues of grace and justice. Since the king, who before all other men, should exhibit them in his life. A call to kingship means that before all other men, you, I, us, must be exhibiting the attributes of the king in our lives first and foremost. After the divine example, cannot sufficiently reflect upon these and praise them. But thus the song is at the same time an ascription of praise to Yahweh. The poet has indeed often already reflected upon these virtues, often already aspired to Yahweh and to an even blessed life entirely laid hold of and led by Yahweh. That his earlier endeavor was not fruitless as shown by the very manner of this song. Amen. Yeah. But not yet. Not yet. Not yet is the goal reached. Anew he exhorts himself to new intensified carefulness and fidelity. Hoping that at last what he so deeply longs for. Yahweh will entirely and abidingly come to him and dwell with him. Saints, you've seen in Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24, David has experienced what it looks like to be a suffering king, to be shepherded by God and become a shepherd. In Psalm 24, he is declaring that the king of glory must come into Jerusalem. Yes. Saints, he personally has worked through these things, but the goal is not yet reached because the king of glory doesn't dwell in the people of God like he knows that it must. What is your responsibility to the world around you like? Are you content with you personally experiencing the presence of God? Or something rising in you that says, I will not cease until all impediments are removed and the king of glory is manifested. Amen. Saints, in this room, we have made extraordinary progress. 
Not just over the last decade, but in the last several months, I've seen families rise higher than they ever have before. We've also experienced warfare and sinful failings. Now is the time for us to say we have not yet reached the goal that we will. King of glory, come to this house. Raise the ancient doors. Remove the gates. And exhort ourselves to an intensified carefulness and fidelity. You see, the praise of Yahweh is the way that you start this process. But church, it is only the beginning of the process. It's only the beginning of seeking His glory and His fidelity. The goal that was not yet reached was that Adonai's throne would dwell inside of Him. Inside of King David and inside of us as a result for King David of his home being in Jerusalem as the principal and capital of the whole kingdom. Stated truthfully, we're tempted to and could with ease take you through a bunch of David's writings on the subject or the apostles themselves of the first century's uh, view and versions of Psalm 101. But instead... We are going to endeavor to center in. We're going to face the central issue with you this morning and dive into the most pragmatic areas of your application of Psalm 101. To that end, we're going to Romans chapter 8 together. Everyone flip to Romans 8 with us. We're going to be reading it from the net. We want to tell you in advance, it is not Young's literal translation. It's not the most literal translation that you can find. But it does, however, get the point across in a searingly pointed and personal way. Amen. Help us. Romans 8.5. You know what? If you're there, call to kingship. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. Think about that for a moment. Those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. He's not talking about a Microsoft product. Your outlook is how you see the world. What initial thoughts come to you as you perceive reality? Your outlook is everything that is coming into your purview that you're reacting to. Your reaction is based on your outlook. If you live according to the flesh, then your entire outlook will be shaped by those things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the spirit. That means any interactions that you're having, you look at it through spiritual eyes, through spiritual thoughts, through spiritual feelings, through spiritual words and spiritual emotion. For the outlook of the flesh is death, guys. But the outlook of the spirit is life and peace. Because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, 
are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives, dwells, resides in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, this person does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is your life because of righteousness. Moreover, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under an obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, be left behind in the desert. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Saints, at this point in the message, there's nothing that we want to teach you. We want your eyes to be open to a real engagement with this because it's been impacting us. David the king was a man whose life was shaped by the focus of the throne of Adonai and constant praise for Adonai, which led to a great longing and continual aspiration to have the throne of God dwell with him and abide in him. We could speak all day about David's interactions with these truths. After all, he wrote the Psalms that you've come to love and run to in your times of need. The bigger issue, though, is that we obtain the same kind of devotion that David had. Instead, we're going to ask you plainly, what is the state of your outlook? If you're able to hear your internal thoughts and meditations, if your internal thoughts appeared on a screen for everyone to see, would they be shaped by the things of the Spirit? The throne of the Lord where your very water of life, refreshment, and sustenance resides? Or would they be being shaped by the things of the flesh? and its gloom and destruction. The outlook of the Spirit is life in right order with God and man, just like the 12 tribes were arranged around the ark or throne of God in constant praise and eager desire. Except, in this case, you don't have an ark to look at. You don't have a physical box to adhere your eyes to. You have to learn what it is to behold the very throne of God that you cannot see. The splendor of the king of majesty. The king of glory. The one who will guide you into truth and all joy as you trust in him. David's life and kingdom exhibited what it looked like for a new state to be more firmly developed. They had achieved incredible success and yet had so far to go. At this point in our message, we're strongly goading you toward the enlightenment in your own personal praise of Yahweh to strengthen your heart through focusing on his virtues. Focusing on him and unwearied longing for his throne. Your desires must come to match those of the Davidic king as well as the son of David. Your desires must rise to strive with all of your being toward Yahweh that you would entirely and abidingly dwell in the house of the Lord for all your future days and forever. In order to begin to grasp such an enduring blessing, you must first come face to face with the facts of your own walk with the Lord. Nick is about to take us through an engagement that is going to be difficult. But I want to remind you that in worship, Isaiah 6 came forward in a prophecy that was the prophet's engagement with his own ruin and then his own restoration in the calling. 
He recognized that he was a man of unclean lips, and much of what he said and thought did not represent God well. And that was the key to him being able to represent God well. Now, we know that you guys did not fail to understand the searingly pointed aspects of Romans 8, but we want to help you with another perspective on our next slide. It's all about the result of your spirit, i.e. the throne of God, a driven outlook, or your own fleshly outlook. As this slide is entitled, A Generous 50 Years of Salvation, because we know that there are very, very few in this room that have yet to experience 50 years walking with the Lord. But we did a little bit of math for you. Say that you got saved at 25 years, and you walk with the Lord until you were 75, and then you died. Well, that would be 50 years of salvation. The next line takes 50 years and multiplies it by 365 days a year. That would be 18,250 days of salvation if you had 50 years of salvation. The third line takes that amount of days and multiplies it by 24 hours a day. Guess what you got? 438,000 hours if you've got 50 years of salvation. Our last line. What if you focused on the throne of God? You focused on the Lord for two hours a day, every single day during those 24-hour periods. Well, you'd have two hours times 18,250 days, which would be a total of 36,500 hours. By the way, this is a generous two hours a day spent reading, praying, and seeking the throne of God. So why would we do this? Is this math class? I'm not going to ask you how many of you spend two hours a day in the word of God, reading undistracted or praying undistracted, because you'd be tempted to lie in the house of God on recording. The reality is I don't know many pastors who legitimately seven days a week actually spend two hours of undivided time focused on the throne of God. My own personal walk is constantly being challenged by these revelations. But let's say that you did seven days a week, every day from the time you got born again, spend at least two of 24 hours actually devoted to the throne. That would be 8.33% of your saved life focused on the throne of God. Saints, I'm not an advocate for locking yourself away or going on to a mountain to pray. I think you should be praying every few seconds as you engage with your life. But you have to engage with something with us. What is the other 91.67% of your life going? Think about this for a moment. If your eyes are on the throne of God, what are your initial thoughts, whether you verbalize them or not, when bad news comes in? Is it an outlook that is set on the spirit that perceives everything through the eyes of God? Or is your outlook set on the flesh? And when things are going wrong, you're trying to get back to the throne of God because you realize that it's wrong. Do you have critical inside thoughts about your brothers? Spouse? Children? That's the outlook of the flesh. That's not the outlook of the spirit. 
A man whose eyes are set on the throne of God does not look at the sons of God and nitpick their speech, their thoughts, or their actions. That's the outlook of the flesh. You've been struggling with anger, or more pertinently, apathy, or some would call just a flatness. The Spirit of God drives a man to holy passion and action that is constructive behavior. You can't be operating in the Spirit of God, in the outlook of the Spirit, and be flat. That's the outlook of the flesh. Look, I can tell you some of the things that I've been personally thinking through. How much of my day do I spend thinking about troubles or logistics, quote-unquote, at work? How much of my time in Christianity have I spent thinking about the sins of other men? Or more direct one, because we have men of God in this room that are desperately striving to get things right, and I don't want you to hear the wrong thing in this. The outlook of the flesh is sitting and pondering your own sinful failings. You're not pondering the throne of God if you're sitting thinking about every time that you screwed up. That's the outlook of the flesh. I'm not going to even get into the low-hanging fruit of how much time out of your 24 hours you've spent on media. If you spent two hours a day that you were legitimately focused on the throne of God, it is little more than 8% of your life belonging to the throne of God. How much time has been spent in other areas? Look, I'm going to give you just two that are personal. I might tell you that I'm thinking my way around a problem. An issue in the church, an issue with a worker, an issue in my home. I'm just thinking my way around the problem, working to come up with a few solutions, which is code for faithlessness. That I'm mulling over and over again in my own mind what has become wearisome and burdensome as Psalm 73 describes. Saints, if you really believe that we are sons of the King of glory, if I believe that I can come to his throne, why on earth would I be meditating on two or three things that are possible scenarios to present to God? I mean, look, I do this wonderful, sinful thing. I mean, it feels great to me in the moment. Lord, which of these two scenarios do you believe is, God, is your will? What would you like me to do, Lord? These are the options that I have spent three hours of the day meditating on. What caused this man to be born blind? Did he sin or did his parents? Neither. If we have access to the king of glory, the one who orders the universe, who founded the earth, who is our father and has called us to set our face to him. Why in my own finite mind would I sit and try to decide what the solutions to the problem are and then ask him to tell me among my solutions what to do? Turn to the king of glory. Ask the God of the universe and set your spirit, your mind, your will and emotions on the outlook that brings life. I have a sinful, consistent, fleshly outlook of being pragmatic by anticipating problems before they happen. Problems that are not real, but create a very real problem in my own heart. Whether they ever materialized or not, the effect inside of me was real. Are you anticipating things going wrong and in doing so, setting your outlook on the flesh rather than the throne of God? Yes! 
We serve the king that has hung the stars in the sky. We serve the king that literally splits mountains in half. We serve the king that literally splits rivers and seas by the breath and by his hand. Guys, what has affected me the most out of anything else this week is being confronted face-to-face with my initial response to difficulties. Got a couple pieces of seemingly bad news this week, but even when I say that, that perspective is death and is from the flesh. Even what I just said is not a perspective of the spirit. It's a perspective of the flesh. How could we say it's bad news and evaluate it from the outlook that we think that we have? We have to put our eyes on the throne. My initial response to that news was, oh my God, this is terrible. My whole outlook was being shaped by the things that I had been looking at, meditating on, focused on, not even for that day, for the last few hours. And it changed my outlook immediately. What can the power of God and the Spirit of God do in a moment, though, when you put your mind, you put your eyes on His throne? You see, your outlook can change like this. Your outlook can change in a moment. Church, that's the power of the God that we serve. That is the capability of him who sits on the throne with his son at the right hand of the son of God. See, he redeemed you in a moment. He baptized you in a moment. He saved you in a moment. And he can change your bad outlook in a moment and make it his in a spiritual way. 8.33% of your life if you spent two hours a day with undivided attention. I want you to meditate for just a moment on what your internal thoughts, not the things that you say that you know are right, but your actual outlook on the world towards your spouse, towards your children, towards the people that are around you. What percentage of your life actually belongs to the throne of God when you give it a biblical evaluation? Not what you want people to see, but the truth of your average week. Today is a day that we can begin a solution. You heard Isaiah 6. Isaiah recognized that although he was a man of God, although he was able to enter the throne room of God, when he actually began to compare his thoughts and his words to the purity of God's throne, he cried, woe unto me. And then God put him in service speaking the words of God for the rest of his life. An honest assessment of your leaders, us included. This past Friday, we got home for step forward about 9.30. Some of you, that sounds like a long time. For us, it was incredible. So much faster. <laughs> Do you know why? That was so much faster because the previous three weeks it was well past midnight because we were talking through the outlook of the flesh by meditating on what is wrong so long as to weary each one of us. But praise God, we're all making progress when we turn on it. 
How do you trim three and a half hours out of a meeting and there are no less problems the next week? It's by changing your outlook. Saints, our goal here is not to put you in a position where you feel like you cannot succeed and everything you do is wrong. It's to put you in a collision course with the living God who can cleanse your thoughts, who can cleanse your lips, that you learn to take a sober assessment of your actual thoughts and the days that you spend distracted by everything other than the throne of the living God. We're going to invite Pastor Wade, Pastor Matthew, and Pastor Eric up here. We're going to read to you from Philippians 3. And then these men are going to, are going to continue and talk to us about how to apply these things. Philippians 3, verse 12. says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. We're living in a flesh that is hostile towards God. It's not just the world around us. Your very flesh is at war with the outlook of the Spirit. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You in this room are Jesus' own. You belong to him. So you have an obligation to press on. Saints, in many senses, this is altar imagery. What it looks like to burn something up and press on towards the throne of God that is the holy of holies. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Saints, this is easier said than done and is rarely observed in the Christian life. It is necessary that you come to a bold confrontation with how much of your life has not been set on the throne. It is also necessary that you fix your eyes on the throne subsequently. Because if you spend your days and time reflecting on how you got it wrong in the past, your eyes are not on the throne. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When you learn what it is to pursue his throne above all else, to make your outlook him, you're always going to higher ground. It doesn't matter what your circumstances look like. It doesn't matter what you have failed in the past. You're engaged in the upward call of God to his kingship. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Saints, I'm not going to sit and talk about how it is immaturity to think differently. It is maturity. It is growing in your calling to be able to recognize the gap between your own outlook and what needs to happen, but being able to forget the past and strain with all of your energy forward. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We're suggesting that you respond in a two-part fashion. And you're going to stay in your seats. We're not going to an altar at this moment. The two-part fashion is that you respond like Isaiah today, confronting what you must. Leaving no area of your own thoughts in the actual percentage of your life that has been centered on the throne off the table. 
that everything that you're embarrassed of, you actually bring before the Almighty God so that you can then turn on it, watch it burned, and forget it as you strain towards the Almighty King. The second part is in your daily practice. This ministry has developed things like the 12 gates, the habit of carrying stones, so many things that are devices intended to help you center on the throne of God. Second thing is that you do whatever it takes for you to not go an hour of your life without setting your mind, will, and emotions back on the throne of God. If you need to write it on your window, if you need to write it on your mirror, if you need to put a sign in front of you that is there 24 hours a day, that you no longer live in the outlook of the flesh, you do what it takes for you to constantly turn back towards the outlook of the spirit of the living God. We're going to break from our format. Worship team, you're relieved. Find your place in seats. Y'all stop thinking about anything else. This church is blessed with rich teaching. And with some of the most amazing teaching that you could possibly imagine coming from second, third, and fourth generation disciples of this ministry, we've got no problem showing short attention spans. Constant movement in our foundation studies. Finding reasons to need to get up every 15 minutes. Checking text messages. I'm not mad at you, it's because you're spoiled. Spoiled beyond belief. You got no problem sitting through a two-hour movie. Holding it, trying not to pee your pants because you don't want to miss what the next Marvel character is going to do. Getting your popcorn and stuff in advance because you paid for this a whopping eight or nine dollars and do not want to miss it. But pretty consistently, one of the strongest churches that I've ever seen, 40 minutes into a message, just goes flat. You can do better than that. And you know now why it is. You're not as focused on Jesus as you say that you are. And the things of Jesus are actually a little bit laborsome to you. So you show up intentionally late to meetings. Oh, you had to be late. You had to work. But you didn't have to be an hour late. You stopped to get gas before the meeting. So you wouldn't have to stop to get gas after the meeting. Now some of you are looking at me like, how could you say that? You know that it's true. Some of you have failed so miserably and so publicly and you don't hesitate to criticize the lives of your leaders that you've been standing on their shoulders it's incredible deuteronomy says remember how rebellious you were and 
that the Lord had mercy on you anyway. But it's not mercy if you take it for granted. It's not mercy if you count on it in advance. It's mercy when you do your utmost and still come up short and he credits you with the difference. I'm going to torture you with a few names from Nehemiah 7.7. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hannah, Peliah, the Levites. You're already bored, aren't you? Because those names don't mean anything to you. Except the text says they helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law. And clearly they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Tell me that these brothers did not just help us do that. I have waited 30 years in ministry to be surrounded by former students that could do what was done today out of the depth of their own relationship. Some of you have benefited by this ministry for 20 years and could not begin to share 10 minutes of meaningful interaction with the word that you had. And we take it like eating popcorn. I asked Wade if he could remember a song that meant something to me when I first got born again. It's not fair, Wade hasn't practiced, but we're not the kind of ministry that needs to practice to experience our heart or express our heart. It's not fair, he didn't know what key to be in and is not sure he can remember every word and yet I promise you the anointing will be on it because despite our many failings, if we turn our eyes towards Jesus, Everything else will fade in the light of his glory and grace. That's exactly what will happen. And I'm going to say this for you, guest. And I mean it with all of my heart without any ounce of apology. And some of you weaker brothers, don't you apologize for me. If you do not want what this ministry is doing, then don't come. We are not begging anybody to follow the king of glory. But if you want the superior king, if you want a pure and unadulterated walk with Jesus, if you want to join with us in that effort, we've been doing it for decades and we'll be doing it for decades after you fall away. This kingdom is not for the half committed. What you heard from these men is no different than what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. So if you don't like it, blame Paul. Better yet, blame the king of Paul. He says in Acts 20, in verse 28, pay careful attention to other people. It's not what he says, is it? 
pay careful attention to yourselves. Can I tell you, you don't have a problem in your life that is generated by somebody else. And the last thing that would ever be a problem to you is the character of the men that are leading you. Ask yourself where you would be without them. Ask yourself what spirit of holiness possessed them to lay down their lives so that you might do better. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. You want to fix your navel outlook? The hours that you spend in despair, the time that you are looking away from Jesus, look no further than the mirror. You begin to repent personally and turn your attention back to the king and the glories of his kingdom. Every other thing in your life will fall right into line. That's exactly what will happen. If your spiritual walk has been less than satisfying, if you feel as if you have not been winning, that is your fault and no one else's. When you can accept that, when you can identify it and die to it, then you can be raised to new life and everything that your brothers do will encourage you. Everything. We've been interacting with Psalm 101. We've been interacting with Psalm 73. Do you know what that came from? Your pastor's own failings with this principle. And we have laid it out for you in multiple sermons. And in the very same week, I hear that we, or me, is an impediment to your walk. We need to grow up. Some of you have been drinking the heavy, laden, fat-rich milk of this ministry. You've been eating the slaughtered lamb of this ministry, and you don't begin to understand what's been done for you. Pay careful attention to your life. Your life. Somebody raise a left hand and say, my life. Now raise your right hand and say, my life. Ask the Lord to clean those two hands. You'll never ascend the mount of God without doing what you're doing right now. Pastor Matthew is going to share a few words with us. We are going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you don't like the style, you think it's antiquated, whatever it is, I can't tell you how much we don't care. That's because your eyes are not on Jesus. And as we sing it, you are going to ask the Lord, like Isaiah, to make you undone in his presence. So that he might make you a fit messenger of his presence. Our king is going to take us to new levels. But this is the only way that it's done. And it's never been done by comparing yourself with another human being. Never. Not, not once. Nobody has ever improved by noticing how bad somebody else sucks. You're only improved from one degree of glory to another by recognizing and coming face to face with where you have not taken Jesus seriously enough and asking him to help you bridge that difference. 
If that is your interest, this ministry is for you. It is life-changing ministries. If that is not your interest, then we have no interest in you being here. Not at all. We benefit nothing by you sitting in a padded seat. All of our interest is on raising the future kings that will lead the world into salvation. That's it. We've never made any bones about that. You can go to Lakewood if that's what you want to do. But if you want to be here, you will be on a collision course with the holiness of God. That is who we are. That's what the kingdom is. That's all you should want if you're here. That's where this flight is going. Whose heart is sincerely ready to be undone in God's presence? Before you stand, I just want to read one verse. It comes from Psalm 121. And before I read the first verse, understand that this is a song of ascent. An elevation of a song that they would sing as they journeyed to the city of God, Jerusalem. Walking through the valleys and foothills and getting to that place where God chose for his name to dwell. And it begins with, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from. You know what you have received this morning? You have received divine help. And that starts by lifting up your eyes. So right now, everyone, physically and internally, lift up your eyes. As I pray, let the rest of your being follow by standing to your feet. If this is something that you will wholeheartedly commit to and put in practice now. Father, we lift up our eyes to you and to you alone. It is only you that which our help comes from. Lord, we ask, help us right now. Help us right now to be transformed from our fleshly outlook to your outlook. We fix our eyes on your throne, your rulership, your lordship, and we say all of who we are belongs rightly to you and to you alone. Lord, let your kingdom come and will be done in us as it is in heaven. And let this be birth and transformation of those that we come in contact with after this moment. Let's sing and worship. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth 
will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Come on, sing it again. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. Sing it with all your heart. And turn and the things of earth. Will grow strangely dead in the light of his glory and grace and the things of earth and the things of earth will grow strangely dead. In the light of his glory and grace. We are in a war. And Deuteronomy 20 tells us that a priest has to come forward. That the priest is to proclaim to you God's will and what will happen. 
And then the captains are to come forward and invite anybody who doesn't want that because they have some other priority to get off the battlefield lest they discourage the hearts of other men. If you're standing in here right now, you've not left the battlefield. It's because you are clinging with all of your heart to what God says will happen. The pressures are cranking up on the churches of the One Association because we are about to go into new nations and plant new ministries. All of us are strapped financially. All of us are pressed by the things of the world. There is only one way to escape that. That is to turn our eyes towards our King and it all fades into the background and all you can hear in your inner being is what God says will happen. That's what faith is. It's taking hold of the reality of what God says in spite of what you see and feel. To be able to cultivate faith, you have to turn away from what you've been looking at and contemplating and to what God says and He says alone. This will raise us all. We're going to close with this passage and then one more time through that song. Or two more. Or three. This is Hebrews 12. You know it. You, you know it. But we're trying to get you to experience it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, look around you. Let us also lay aside every weight. need to throw those weights down. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We're throwing away things that are contrary to the superior king. Thoughts that are contrary to his ruling and reigning in your life. Thoughts that are contrary towards the other subjects of the kingdom, the sons of God. We're not going to let them cling closely to us. We're going to know nothing of evil. We're going to set no worthless thing before our eyes. We are going to sing of the steadfast love and the justice of God until it so permeates our soul that there is no other option. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He was looking at agony and considered it joy because it's the will of God. He didn't see the agony, he saw the joy in it. Oh, saints, that... It's the attitude of a superior king and he put his spirit in you. Finish your repentance. Finish your turning from what we have been doing so that we can get on to running. Running, not walking. Running like, like a reckless abandonment of all earthly concern. Running after him. And we get to do it with each other. You are not standing alone. 
We get to do it with each other and our children's children's children will minister together. Stand back and take scope of what God is building here. Father, as we sing, turn our eyes upon Jesus. We ask that you turn the eyes of our heart upon your majesty. Help us, mighty God, that we might run. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Come on, sing it again, church. And turn your eyes. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Spend the rest of your day meditating on the good things God has done for you and your brothers. If you share a testimony, let it be a testimony that would be worth being shared in the cloud of witnesses. We don't need to talk about where you've gotten it wrong. You just turned from that. We don't want to dwell on negativity. For the rest of this day, make it your solemn goal before the living God to simply celebrate how good he has been to you and those that are standing around you. Okay. That in itself is an act of faith. And he will honor it. No mully grubs today. No self-loathing today. No criticism of others today. Today, we just magnify the king. And your week will be better for it. Hallelujah. We thank you, mighty God. Lord, you are perfect and we want to be like you, so we are keeping our eyes upon you. We love that you lead us in your victorious spirit. We love, mighty God, that you are transforming us into your glory. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said,